Hello and welcome to the Pump Court Civil Law Podcast. This is a new venture from Pump Court's Civil Law team and over the next season uh, we're going to be bringing you a variety of podcasts featuring a number of Pump Court Civil team and covering a whole host of topics spanning the various different types of civil work that we do here at Pump Court Chambers. We three are the hosts of this civil podcast. Uh, today we will be hosting a, a roundtable session. So in future, we will be bringing on other guests, members of and guests of chambers to interview. But today, the three of us will be all together so that you can put a voice to our names. We'll give a brief introduction to ourselves. I'm Louisa Simpson. I joined Pump Court uh, a year or two ago. I'm a civil practitioner and specialise mainly in employment, regulatory and other general civil work, including personal injury. I'm Tim Salisbury. I joined Pump Court in 2016. I've specialised in public inquiry law and also various other aspects of commercial and civil litigation. And I'm Christopher Stead. I also joined Pump Court in the last year and I also have a, a relatively broad civil practice but with a particular focus on property and probate. So hopefully you've now able to to match our voices to our names if not we'll we'll try and remind you uh, as we go throughout the episode this episode as louisa said is a, a slightly unusual one as it should be as we kick off normally what we'll be doing is one of us or maybe two of us will be interviewing either a member of chambers or a guest of chambers on a particular topic but we thought today as our inaugural episode goes out what we would do is we would sit around a, a virtual table together and discuss uh, each of us will bring a case to the table and discuss some of the things that arise out of that case. So you've got a, a, a nice variety of case law about to come your way. And uh, we're going to kick off with Tim Salisbury, who is going to be talking about the case of Majid Ali and HSF Logistics Polska. Over to you, Tim. Thanks, Chris. Um, yes, so I'm going to be talking about Majid Ali and HSF Logistics Polska. Um, anyone that wants a neutral citation for that, that's 2023 EWHC 2159KB. Uh, uh, this was a case heard by Mr. Justice Martin Spencer in the King's Bench Division uh, in the District Registry at Birmingham. And it's a decision that was handed down the 6th of September 2023. The case concerned a claim by Mr. Ali for the recovery of credit hire charges after his Volvo, which had been parked on the road at the time, was struck by uh, one of the defendant's vehicles. That is all fairly standard, save in this case there were two interesting facts. Firstly, the claimant's MOT had expired four and a half months before the accident. Uh, secondly, the policy of insurance for the vehicle was in the name of the claimant's cousin, and the claimant had previously been disqualified from driving and obtaining insurance in his cousin's name reduced the premium um, in a practice which is known as insurance fronting. At trial, the judge found that although the vehicle had no MOT, it wasn't in a dangerous or unroadworthy condition. He also found that the claimant had no intention of obtaining an MOT certificate in the near future. There was also a finding that the claimant had caused or permitted the fronted policy to be obtained in his cousin's name. So at first instance, the defendants argued an ex turpi causa defence, uh, by which uh, I mean that this is the common law principle uh, that no action can arise from an illegal act. 
uh, also sometimes known as an illegality defense principle. Um, this was said to be advanced on two bases. First, it was in relation to the failure to have a valid MOT for the vehicle, which had been pleaded. And second, uh, it was in relation to the insurance fronting, which for some reason had not been pleaded. It was also argued at trial by way of a supplementary causation argument that the lack of MOT meant that the claimant wasn't entitled to use the vehicle and so had no loss of use. After hearing argument, the judge at first instance held that he wouldn't allow the illegality argument to be run as, uh, in relation to fronting as it had not been pleaded. Uh, the MOT point was considered, uh, but on the judge's analysis, it fell down on the third limb of the tests from Patel and Mirza uh, that it would be disproportionate to act as an absolute bar to the claim. Um, considering the fact that although the vehicle had no valid MOT, at the time of the accident, the vehicle was parked and it wasn't otherwise unroadworthy. The judge did, however, accept the causation argument uh, on the grounds that it wasn't a reasonable act of mitigation for, a claimant, for the claimant to hire a car uh, in relation to the loss of use of his vehicle when at the time he couldn't have lawfully used his vehicle. Uh, had he done so, it would have been uh, a criminal act. Uh, the claimant appealed uh, this uh, and argued that it was wrong to separate out the illegality argument into two strands. So effectively, if the ex-Turpi argument failed, which it had done, then the claimant shouldn't be able to use the illegality point in relation to the causation argument. Uh, in the claimant's skeleton for the appeal, they phrased it quite nicely as saying that the causation argument was just ex turpi wearing a different dress. Mr. Justice Martin Spencer started his discussion of the law by stating that he considered it was quite a difficult issue to resolve. He drew the distinction between two sorts of illegality. First, the all-encompassing defence provided by ex turpi, giving the example of a hypothetical claimant engaging in drug dealing or burglary at the relevant time. That's the classic example of the illegality defense in action. He noted that the complete bar to assistance uh, could be extreme in some circumstances and gave an example of um, a four-year-old Jaguar in perfect condition where the MOT had lapsed through oversight rather than design, which I think is quite an interesting insight into the judicial car buying choices. He also considered that it would be disproportionate to disallow a claim in those circumstances, and that to do so would probably be regarded by many ordinary motorists as to be bringing the law into disrepute. He then considered a second, more targeted form of illegality, which can be directed towards a particular aspect of the claim being made. Such an approach doesn't need broad considerations of policy following the, the, the Patel and Mirza criteria. It allows the court to effectively then differentiate between the meritorious claimant, such as the disorganized Jaguar owner in, in, in the example, and an unmeritorious claimant 
who has no intention of obtaining an MOT in the near future. So the judge's conclusion was that there was effectively a flexible principle. Um, it allowed the court to ask itself the questions raised by the law of causation, such as for how long but for the accident would the vehicle have remained on the road without a valid MOT? Uh, it then allows the court to do justice by compensating over the period the damaged vehicle would likely have been other would otherwise have been lawfully on the road. So the outcome was this: that when faced with a claim involving an argument concerning illegality, the court is entitled to find that either a ex terpi applies and the claims dismissed in full, or b that the particular illegality may not apply to the claim as a whole and can be considered in a more targeted way to a particular aspect of the claim. And in this case, that was the application to causation. So I think that's, that's effectively the finding in this case. And the two, I think, ancillary and interesting points that arise from it to do with pleading. Because it's a salient example of um, including everything that you're going to run because had the fronting issue been pleaded, it was noted at first instance that it would have succeeded as, as a complete defense. And then the High Court also noted, uh, paragraph 7, that really the um, causation argument should have been properly pleaded. So I think in this case, the defendant was to an extent a little bit lucky uh, in being allowed to run that point. Uh, but um, generally, the point to take away, in addition to the illegality points uh, discussed at the, at the center of this, is, is that really, if you want to run these points, you really have to plead them. So I don't know what it, um, Chris or Louisa, whether you have any comments on on the, the case. Yeah, very interesting. I had a thought in this case, both the ex terpy causa point was looked at and the causation point was looked at. I mean, Tim, what are your thoughts also on a, a betterment argument? So if the claimant had an unroadworthy car beforehand because of not having an MOT or, or otherwise, and then with the credit hire vehicle, they then have a roadworthy car, is there also the potential for um, a betterment argument to be run so that in the alternative a claim for loss should, should fail on that ground well betterment is quite a tricky point when you consider um credit hire claims generally i mean i, th I think the tr i think the proper construction is to discount it using um using a cause of a, a, a straightforward causation argument because the problem that is often encountered with with credit hire arguments is Whenever, one, whenever somebody says, oh, it's a betterment of the vehicle, nine times out of ten is to do with an old vehicle being replaced by a, a newer vehicle or a newer model or slight, sometimes a slightly better model within the same class of insurance. But the commercial reality of um, being able to actually obtain a, a rate for a comparable, slightly battered um, vehicle is, is just not... Um, it's just not available. And the court has to look to, to what, you know, is it an unreasonable failure to mitigate? Um, and I think that tends to take centre stage. So arguments of betterment, I can't say I've ever really uh, seen them succeed in, in credit hire cases because I think that, that they tend not to be the main battleground. 
Yeah. Well, I suppose you can't obtain a a rate for an unroadworthy car to compare it to. Absolutely. And, and I, th I think that does take us back to the causation point that effectively, if, if the car cannot have been used, but, it, you know, the, 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 it's effectively um, a meritorious claimant. So there's, a, a, you know, just, just an over, a slight oversight by, by the owner. Um, what the court can do is say, well, I, I, I think that the, he, he would have realised and probably would have got the MOT sorted within a fortnight. So I'll take out 14 days from the higher claim and award the rest, which I think is, to my, to my mind, sounds like the more just approach. Um, what, what I do think is a little bit sticky is, is, the suggest, is, is the terminology, the meritorious and unmeritorious claimant, because there is a risk, perhaps, of, of inviting arguments uh, on appeal that a judge has, has wrongly considered somebody to be meritorious or unmeritorious. But I suspect mm. most of those would then fall within um, the scope of uh, judicial discretion. Yeah. I, I find it interesting that these things weren't pleaded, or certainly the illegality point. Um, I mean, when, when did the facts come out in relation to both the MOT and the insurance fronting because so often these things don't come out until disclosure and witness evidence anyway. Um, so that was my first thought. But also, ha having having seen lots of pleadings in credit hire cases, often defendant pleadings tend to take a, a belt and braces approach and include every possible, quite understandably, conceivable defence. Sometimes I'm, I'm sure, including illegality points. So I, I'm surprised that that there wasn't something sufficient in the pleading to say that that it is it is sufficiently there um, that that as the evidence comes out, it, it sort of adds flesh to that pleading pleading bone. Any any thoughts on that? Well, first the the pleading in relate the illegality pleading in relation to the failure to have a valid MOT was pleaded. It was the insurance fronting point that hadn't been pleaded, and then and then the illegality aspect in relation to causation hadn't been spelt out. I know what you mean. Often that there is a kitchen sink defence, but I, th I think when you're starting to look at an illegality argument, um, I, I can certainly see um, judges at first instance not really willing to entertain that on a broad pleading without any specificity. That I am surprised that it wasn't picked up. I would have thought the insurance fronting point would likely have been picked up before pleadings had been um, finalised for the defendant. Uh, and it is surprising that the causation point wasn't pleaded. But but you know sometimes, as you say, they're they're, they're slightly pro forma. Everything in the kitchen sink um, approaches go in. But but this one, you know, they had picked up on the lack of MAT, but not not um, spelt out those other points. And I think it's probably right that the judge didn't allow the, the fronting point to continue mm. without, without proper notice. I think that, was, that would have been a bit unfair. Yeah. In this case, the illegality was obviously the, the lack of MOT and also the, this fronting issue. Um, but do we think it's safe to say that the same principles would apply to a vehicle driven illegally for other reasons? For example, if it was in an unroadworthy condition, uh, yes, I think it would. I mean, I, unroadworthy condition is perhaps a slightly harder one to prove because uh, I think you know, where, whereas it's very easy to say, for example, that somebody 
doesn't have insurance or doesn't have an MOT. Um, unroadworthy prior to an accident is sometimes slightly difficult, especially because if you consider the state that the vehicle might then be assessed in um, after the accident, uh, it, there's always some scope to say that, the, that anything that made it unroadworthy was in the, during the course of the accident. But yeah, I think I think the the, the general point is sound um, that the illegality. Um, it, it, it's not particular to this type of illegality, um, uh, and it take it allows a general approach um, towards uh, other forms of illegality and, and other applications. I think it just it, it it's stops it being such a binary defence of some, you know something is illegal, so it must be thrown out, which I think does like is likely to feel fairly disproportionate on on occasion. Um, and you know, Mr. Justice uh, Spencer took Mr. Justice Martin Spencer took took some comfort in the Court of Appeal case, which was raised at the end um, after the judgment had been uh, settled. The the Court of Appeal case of um, Hewis and Meridian Shipping, and took comfort from that uh, case to suggest that the illegality can can apply to aspects of the claim, can apply to just the, da the damages aspect of a claim rather than the whole claim itself. So I think uh, it, there is there is support from, in the higher courts for, for, for that approach. Um, and I think the whole purpose of this decision is to say effectively that you can use, the illegality can be used for multiple purposes. Interesting. Thanks for that, Tim. Um, so I think we're now going to hear from you, Louisa. Yes, yeah, so we move now into the uh, employment sphere. I'm going to be discussing the case of um, R on the application of ASLEF, ASLEF and others, and the Secretary of State for Business and Trade. It's a 2023 case. And again, neutral citation is EWHC 1781 admin. In this case, the High Court upheld a judicial review challenge which had been brought by 13 different trade unions to the government's revocation of Regulation 7 of the Conduct of Employment Agencies and Employment Business Regulations 2003. I'll just call them the regulations. Um, but Regulation 7, the, the one that uh, was revoked in 2022, it prohibited employment businesses from supplying temporary workers to cover the work of those taking part in official industrial action, so strikes. And in this case, uh, earlier this year, the High Court found that in doing so, so in uh, well, in revoking that Regulation 7, the Secretary of, of State had failed to comply with his duty under Section 12.2 of the Employment Agencies Act 1973, to undertake consultation before making the amendment to the regulations which which affected the revocation. Um, and accordingly, the High Court quashed that amendment to the regulations. Um, so, so this case is, is interesting, really, in today's climate and in the very high level of industrial action that we have at the moment. So by way of a, a brief background, as I say, Regulation 7 until July of last year, prohibited employment businesses from supplying employers with these temporary workers to perform the duties normally performed by those on strike, those workers on strike, um, or even the work 
of a, of a worker who had been assigned to cover the work of a striking colleague. Now, the Conservative manifesto at the 2015 general election proposed repealing this Regulation 7 to lessen the impact of strike action on the wider economy. Um, and they commenced a, a consultation quite soon um, after coming to power in July 2015. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the, the majority of responses didn't favour the change in the law and, and the government at that point decided not to go ahead. However, in June last year, the government decided in perhaps the context of um, increasing industrial action in the rail sector um, and other anticipated industrial action, that Regulation 7 would be revoked without further public consultation. Um, and that change was made by the amendment regulations, which came into force uh, last summer, but as a result of this case, which are no longer. Um, so the 13 different trade unions, they brought a, a judicial review challenge to the amendment, um, and they asserted the Secretary of State had failed to comply with his duty to consult before he amended those regulations. The Secretary of State argued the duty had been met by the 2015 consultation, or alternatively, that relief should be refused on the ground that it was highly likely the outcome wouldn't have been substantially different even if he had further consulted in 2022. Now, the High Court upheld the challenge on, on the ground the consultation hadn't taken place. Um, it, it held that the duty to consult was there in order to enhance the quality of the Secretary of State's decisions by requiring him to take into account the views and evidence of those who are likely to be well-informed and to reassure Parliament that the case for the measure has been tested with interested parties in the sector whose views and interests have been taken into account uh, and into consideration when drafting. The, the court, High Court strongly rejected the Secretary of State's argument that the consultation duty could be satisfied by there being some consultation at some point prior to the making of the amended regulations, regardless of how far in advance of the amendment that consultation took place and regardless of any other issues as to the quality of the consultation relied on um, or its relevance at the time of the decision. It was held that the quality of the consultation has to be guided by common law principles, and so the court had to ask whether the Secretary of State's approach to the consultation was so unfair as to be unlawful. So the High Court held that even assuming that it would be sufficient to rely on the 2015 consultation, that the Secretary of State didn't in fact do so in, in the relevant sense, that there was no evidence he consciously considered the responses to the 2015 consultation before making the 2022 decision to repeal Regulation 5. There was evidence that the measure in fact could, could only have a negligible beneficial impact in the short term and possibly an adverse impact on the government's ability to settle ongoing industrial disputes. And so the High Court accordingly concluded that Secretary of State's judgment about whether the regulation should be revoked wasn't informed by or tested against the views and evidence of bodies which were representative of the interests concerned, even those expressed earlier in 2015. Um, they also held that even if the Secretary of State had conscientiously considered the responses to the 2015 consultation before making the decision to repeal in 20. Uh, in 2022, 
um, that it still would have been unfair and inconsistent with the aims of Section 12.2 to fail at least to seek some updated views and evidence in 2022, given the lapse of time, developments in the intervening period, and the reasons why the proposal hadn't been implemented back in 2015, and the proffered reasons for wishing to implement it in 2022. On relief, the High Court also refused to accept that it was highly likely that a rational and open-minded Secretary of State, conscientiously considering responses to a consultation held in 2022, had one taken place, would have come to substantially the same decision. It wasn't a case where there had been substantial compliance with the obligation to consult, but some flaw in the process. Um, Rather, the Secretary of State's approach was to commit to the revocation of Regulation 7 at a time when the advice to him was that doing so would be of negligible short-term benefit uh, and probably, in fact, counterproductive without reference to the views of those who operate in the recruitment sector. So in today's climate, it's um, unsurprising, perhaps, that the UK is facing the highest rates of industrial action in in many, many decades across many sectors and different professions. So whilst striking workers receive protection, there is very strictly and very tightly set out um, protection and rules around that so that failure to comply with any of those onerous requirements to make the strike lawful and legitimate could result in the strike being called off, um, as we saw earlier this year um, with the the nurses' strike and the expiry of the mandate, or the removal of the protection provided to those striking workers if they choose to to continue. So with the recent upsurge in industrial action, the government, it, it seems in 2022, um, made or attempted to make this change to the law, removing the ban on engaging those temporary workers to to cover striking staff. Um, And some, perhaps the government might say the decision makes it harder to to bring an end to the ongoing pay disputes in the rail, healthcare, education and, and other sectors. In reality, it seems perhaps the amendment to the legislation was, um, on advice to the government, relatively ineffective in any case, um, because in reality, there has actually been very little use by employers of agency workers to backfill shortages caused by industrial action, um, as there are limited pools of resources when it comes to temporary labour, particularly for skilled work, um, and because of the obvious risk to employment relations that that uh, doing so would cause. So that's where we stand now on that issue um, I don't know if either of you, Tim or Chris, have any thoughts or comments on that case. The, the consequence now, what's is the government talking about taking any further, is the government going to enter into another consultation process? Is it going to try and get a, a substantially similar result by different means? Well, I, I suppose there could be the opportunity for further appeal. Um, so perhaps we will have to wait to see whether that um, takes place. That might well be the, the next step. If not, there would have to be further consultation before there was any amendment which um, is proposed to take place again. But whether we end up in that situation or, or not, perhaps will depend on the next general election and, and whether the same government remain in power in any case. So, so potentially... This may be the end of it, but it, I think that probably depends most likely on whether there's a, a further appeal, which there could well be, but 
I think it seems unlikely that that would be successful. And so do, have I followed it correctly that, that the court held that the seven-year-old consultation could have been relied upon, but w- with an updating consultation? The court held that the Secretary of State hadn't, in fact, properly, conscientiously considered the 2015 consultation, um, but also found that that even if he had, um, it wouldn't have been sufficient to do so because what should have been done would be um, for a reasonable person in that position um, would have been to take some updated views, given that in the passing seven years or so that there clearly will have been some um, differences that have um, occurred, which might mean that there are different factors to take into account. Chris, move us on with your next case. Yes, yeah, thanks very much, um, Louisa. So we've had some some credit hire. We've had some really interesting um, and, you know, rel- relative, pretty significant decision there on, on employers and industrial action. Um, I'm I'm going to wrap up this opening episode of the civil law or civil team podcast with some civil procedure news in terms of case law, and one which en- anyone involved in civil work I'm sure will have come across. So I won't spend too long going through it, but it's an important one to know, uh, and it's it's the default judgment case of the Court of Appeal that's um, happened very recently. Uh, judgment handed down, I think, in July. Uh, So the case is FXF and English Karate Federation and others. And um, the the anonymization of the claimant's name there is because it was a a claim involving allegations of of sexual abuse and breach of duty on the part of various karate organizations and those that they employed to instruct people who are members of the club. Um, in one sense, the very well, very obviously, very serious subject matter of the case, but the the, the substantive issues in the case don't feature in this particular judgment, which is devoted entirely to the Court of Appeal, basically putting an end to a back and forth between various first instance decisions and re-readings or, or whatever it might be of higher decisions on the the vexed question of whether. Uh, an application to set aside a default judgment under CPR 13.3, that is one that appeals to the court's discretion rather than the, the mandatory setting aside where judgment should never have been entered in the first place under um, 13.2. But under 13.3, whether that application is itself a relief from sanctions application to which the the broader jurisprudence um, applicable to CPR 3.9 in particular would apply, and in shorthand term, whether whether it's a Denton test that should be applied to default judgment or not, and this court of appeal case um, has the master of the role, Sir Geoffrey Voss, being crystal clear. Yes, it does. Um, so that's an end to the that back and forth. That's an end to the question. The Denton test does apply to an application for relief from, uh, to an application to set aside default judgment because a default judgment is a sanction imposed by the rules um, for failing to comply with uh, particularly a rule of the court, namely the one that says a defendant has to enter a defence. And so th- this is is welcome in the sense that it brings clarity. 
the reason the reason why clarity was needed was because previous decisions had said, well, you know, thirteen point three, it's its own kind of standalone, self-contained sort of code. Why do we need to bring the Denton principles into it? Um, and there's a, a line of authority basically drawing its power from a, a Privy Council decision, the case of Matthews, um, an appeal to the Privy Council from Trinidad and Tobago and Lord Dyson's judgment in that case, where when considering the quite similar provisions, but not identical provisions um, from that jurisdiction, the Privy Council said basically, no, it's not a relief from sanctions application. I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but um, no, it's not. And then you had uh, a couple of high court decisions, first instance decisions, I think, where the the high court judge, um, or perhaps there were appeals from from district judges. And anyway, the, the point is high court judges said, well, we're following that. And indications from the Court of Appeal, particularly in the case of Gentry, um, that suggest that Denton does apply. Well, either previous cases are obiter or in the case of Gentry, where the Court of Appeal did pretty much say that Denton would apply. Um, That was decided because the parties had already agreed in Gentry that Denton applies to setting aside default judgment. Um, and so uh, the, the most recent one of, of those was um, uh, PX, I think PXC and AB College, decision of Dexter Dias QC sitting as a judge of the High Court, where where it, it was held in that case that Denton does not apply to an application to set aside default judgment. Um, in this case, FXF and English Karate and others, the Court of Appeal said, that uh, that case was simply wrongly decided on the law and should be overturned and not followed. Denton does apply. Um, So it's now nice and clear that when making an application to set aside default judgment, first you need to go through the the two-part test of 13.3, that there's a reasonable prospect of successfully defending the claim, and then considering whether the application to set aside um, the judgment has been made promptly. And once those those tests have been met, then the Court of Appeal says you go on to apply the threefold Denton test, which allows the court to consider a, a broader um, range of procedural problems that may have attended the claim to that point. Um, in particular, the let's say the reason for the delay or the failure to enter judgment, sorry, to enter a defence in the first place, because of course the the current thirteen point three doesn't actually consider any delay or failure to enter the defence, just whether the application to set aside the default judgment has been made promptly. Um, whereas the threefold Denton test, of course, is the breach serious or significant? Was there a good reason? And then the catch-all, all the circumstances of the case will allow the court to look at that wider range of circumstances. So basically, that's it. There's some more nitty-gritty, of course, to get into in the judgment. And I'd recommend anyone, of course, who is going to be making or appearing on a a setting-aside application, you need to have read that case to see exactly what is being asked. But uh, it's a nice, hopefully, brief finish to this podcast. The answer is Denton must be considered and therefore, the threefold test of Denton has to be gone through um, after the the thirteen point three prongs have been um, explored. 
And in, in the particular case, the, the master at first instance hadn't explicitly gone through the Denton test, but the Court of Appeal was satisfied that it was sort of there in the reasoning. And so therefore, actually, um, it, it was okay that the, the judgment was set aside in that case, even though uh, the master hadn't spelled out the, the Denton principles. Um, but the case is obviously of, of much wider application than what happened in that instance. Uh, and, and it simply is that, that, that those three Denton issues have to be considered as well as the 13.3 default judgment setting aside principles. So there we go. That's um, that's that case. Any any questions or thoughts on on that, Tim? Yeah, I, I think that's um, it's a really interesting case, and um, it's well worth reading, not least because there are some slightly dismissive remarks about one of the other judges in one of the decisions that isn't followed, which is a, which seemed a little bit mean, and I, I won't name any names. I, I think in in this case, there's a little bit of a fudge in the way that they that the court of appeal allow the first instance decision to get through in order not to risk that do you have any thoughts on what any of our listeners could do to make sure that it everything is dealt with uh, in in applications of this nature uh, in terms of preparation of evidence for example well yes i mean it it's quite neatly set out and and the master of the roles he said he did this in the case of Gentry. He actually just set out this procedure, um, which is which is why he had some some p- very particular observations on how Gentry was treated. As I said, some of the other decisions said, well, in Gentry, the parties agreed Denton applied. And so therefore, Gentry doesn't decide that Denton applies. It just sort of proceeds on the assumption. And the master of the role says, um, that may be the case, but in Gentry... I followed this particular procedure, so so not particularly patient, I don't think, with that view. But but yes, it essentially, go working through it seems firstly the thirteen point three factors. So the merits of the case is there a, is is this a meritorious case? Is it arguable? Are you, are you going to are there real prospects of, of um, successfully defending this case? And and or is there any other reason? Um, often they're sort of uh, mocked in mopped in together quite understandably and then considering the specific question of when the application to set aside the judgment was made and whether it was made promptly but then in the denton moving in the witness statement i suppose to the threefold denton test and and then applying well was the breach in the first place serious or significant and there addressing the question of what what impact was made upon the litigation by the failure to file the defence, um, timescales, so on and so forth. Again, the, the Court of Appeal in this recent decision has some useful guidance on the kinds of things to consider there. Um, and then was there a good reason, obviously? And then going through, again, the circumstances of the case is going to be considering um, the justice proportionality. But one of the things that the Court of Appeal does make clear here is that the courts... Um, are very keen, rightly so, to ensure that uh, rules are complied with. And it may well be that uh, that the failure to comply with rules or directions or practice um, directions and court orders and so on, um, but obviously particularly here uh, where a defence hasn't been filed or an acknowledgement of service hasn't been filed, if the impact upon the litigation is of such a magnitude that it really has affected everybody and, and caused quite significant prejudice, then it could well be that even if 
even if the 13.3 real prospect of successfully defending the claim is met, um, that actually the third strand of the Denton test may well um, eclipse, um, I think is the language that's used, the, the merits of the case. Uh, so it's worth yeah going through um, systematically those different different points and issues and making sure that they're all addressed as fulsomely as they can be. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I for one am very uh, grateful for the clarification. I think we often found ourselves in a situation where we were having to make submissions on Denton in a 13.3 application in, in case it was considered that it applied when actually the, the application notice itself and the evidence that, that we had didn't necessarily cover all of those Denton points. Whereas I, I think given the clarity that the Court of Appeal has now given and the, the hard line they're clearly taking in terms of views against non-compliance with the CPR, Hopefully, as you say, Chris, it will be uh, very much prepared in a way so that whilst the prospects of success, successfully defending a claim will, will still obviously remain a key factor going forward. I think applications will obviously have to focus more on particularly the reasons behind the original non-compliance. So having that really clearly set out in the application and evidence dealing with that will certainly assist going forwards. Yes. Yeah, I I was going to say, I think the Court of Appeal make it very clear in their judgment they don't want to hear any more on it, don't they? Paragraph 72 of the judgment. This court is now clearly stating that the Denton tests apply in their full rigour to applications to set aside default judgments. PXC is overruled and the dicta and Cunico are no longer to be relied upon. And that is definitely the tone. <laughs> so yeah. go away and do it properly. Yeah, there, there, there were those two strands of authorities. And uh, I, I think part of the the force of that paragraph that you just read out there, Tim, was was because in, in Gentry, the Court of Appeal had come as, as close as one might have expected a court to come to say that Denton does apply. So I think that's why it's now just trying to draw a very firm line under this um, discussion and and it, obviously it does have consequences as I've said that that whether or not Denton applied could actually make a difference in the right circumstances to whether a case um, whether an application to set aside succeeds or not so it, it's not it's not just uh, a sort of hair splitting distinction that is going on here but actually um, it is an important thing and, and the Court of Appeal has has very helpfully brought clarity there um, and very much landed on the side uh, as Louisa said, of making sure that that compliance with with the general process of the court as set out um, in all the different instruments is is upheld and enforced. Absolutely, good stuff. All right, thank you to all of our listeners. Thanks very much for joining us today in our inaugural civil podcast episode, um, and we hope to have you join us again in the future. Hope this has been interesting and insightful.